Okay, now we're in business. It's recording. The subject matter for today, as uh, you can see, is the subject of regeneration. Now, if you have looked in your book at the chapter titles, uh, you will note that there are various items that are going to be covered in the future, various topics that are going to be covered in the future. And you might have asked yourself, is there a particular order to these words um, that are covered by each of these chapters? In our case, the chapter is regeneration. And you may have asked yourself, well, is there a particular order that these chapters are put in? And could they be rearranged? Well, they, I mean, theoretically, they could be re rearranged, but there is a, an arrangement, there is an order uh, to the chapters. And um, that is a good um, introduction to what I would like to, to um, bring to your attention here initially this morning. And in order to do that, I have a handout that I put at the end of each of these tables. So if you would take one of those handouts and pass it down the row, there hopefully is enough for each one of you. I can give one to <clears throat> this is something that I put together actually years ago just in trying to get an overview of God's plan of salvation. What I want to do, since we have a number of these chapters that are covering a number of these topics uh, that have to do with the application of redemption, I wanted to give you an overall general context for all of these different subjects that we're going to be covering. So if you have a copy, I think each one has a copy now. If you will look with me at the top, it says God's plan of salvation. And there are, two, there are three major headings here. You all, I'm sure, have heard it said before that salvation can be divided into salvation or redemption planned, redemption accomplished, and redemption applied. Redemption planned generally being thought of as the work of the Father. Redemption accomplished being thought of as the work of Christ. He is the one who died for us. God planned it. Christ died. And then salvation applied. The Holy Spirit takes uh, the work that Christ did and applies it to our hearts. And so we have the work of the Father, the work of the Son, and the work of the Spirit as is um, depicted here in this chart. We're not going to go through everything on this chart. I just want to give you the overview. If you will look down, um, there is a bar that runs across the whole section there. It says Union with Christ. And we uh, were well instructed about that subject last week uh, by Jason, who taught us that all of the uh, benefits of salvation come to us because of our being united to Christ. Under salvation plan, we see foreknowledge, election, and predestination. Under salvation accomplished, we can divide it into the obedience of Christ, both the passive and active obedience of Christ, the atonement, the various ways in which we can describe the atonement, such as sacrifice, propitiation, reconciliation, and redemption. But then when it comes to salvation applied, which is where our topic falls in this morning, salvation applied has various aspects as well. Um, the beginning of that, which we can see from Romans chapter 8 and verses 28 and following, 
is effectual calling, what we theologians call effectual calling. After effectual calling is regeneration, and then faith and repentance, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, and glorification. And I think if you think, if even with what you already know about this, you can see that there is a kind of order here. Uh, we must be regenerated and have faith and repentance before we're going to be glorified. So you can, uh, I think, easily see there is, is um, some reasonableness, some uh, logic to the order. Now just a, a quick uh, comment about the arrows that you see on here. If, if, the, um, if the work is being, if, if the item that is being discussed there is an act of God, then you'll see an A above the item, such as effectual calling, and a down arrow. That means it is God who does it, and he performs it, and it's an act. It's not an ongoing work. It's done, and it's over. If you see a W, that means it's a work. It's, a, it's ongoing such as sanctification. Some of them have an A and a W. That's because there is an initial aspect of sanctification in which we're set apart. It is what, what theologians call definitive sanctification. And then it's an ongoing work and, that we are involved in. And if you see the double arrow up and down, that means both God and man cooperate in it. Um, the Holy Spirit is at work in us to will and to do his good pleasure. He works and we work. So that's just a very quick overview of this. All I want to do by this is give you an idea as to where regeneration falls in this whole scheme, uh, the whole plan of redemption. You will see that it falls after effectual calling. It is really a sister to, or like the flip side of the coin with effectual calling, but in the plan of redemption, when God is going to bring a sinner to himself, he begins by calling that individual, regenerating them, and then come faith and repentance. And that's what we're going to see as we go through this. So, <clears throat> why is it necessary, and we're, gonna, we're, we're departing from this now for the most part. You can set it aside if you want to. Yes. Consist of particularists. Uh, that ties in with a whole completely different chart, and uh, I'll have to do uh, that'll have to wait another time, take too long. <laughs> so, um, sorry about that. <clears throat> so, why is it necessary for God to call us? We're dead. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. What's man's problem? It is necessary for us to understand man's internal desperate need. Man is dead in sin and he is unable to respond to the gospel. It is true that he is unwilling, but it is also true that he is unable. We see that right from the very beginning. Genesis 2, 16 to 17, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely... 
eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And he did die that day. Now physically he began to die in a sense, but he didn't drop dead in his tracks physically that day. <coughs> Nevertheless, he did die. He became um, part of the kingdom of darkness, and physically he was on his way to physical death, There's some other, let's get these other charts for these guys down. Maybe by me to pick a few of them down this way. Here's some And spiritually, he died. For the wages of sin is death. Man is dead in his trespasses and sins. Ephesians 1, uh, 2 and 5. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. All I want to do is highlight certain aspects here. You were dead in your trespasses, verse 5 from Ephesians. John 6, 44, <laughs> is man able? What, this is man's desperate need. John, in John, uh, records what Jesus himself said. Jesus said, no one can come to me. No one can come to me unless the Father who, sins, who sent me draws him. And then Romans 8, 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not, okay, so it's true that he doesn't. It does not submit to God's law. <coughs> Indeed, Paul goes on to say, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Apart from Christ, Outside of the working of the Holy Spirit, the scriptures very, very clearly teach that man is dead. He's dead in his trespasses and sins. He cannot come to the Lord. He has a desperate need. And that's where calling comes in, effectual calling comes in. What is effectual calling? Effectual calling is a summons to come to Christ. Probably the word summons, if you wanted to use a single word, would be the best word to describe what effectual calling is. It is a summons to come to Christ. And by definition, we can say that effectual calling is the sovereign. I don't mean to steal somebody's thunder, because I'm sure this will be explained in more detail by other, uh, either, I forget, Tim or Jason, one of the two, uh, in the near future. But um, just as a, a quick idea uh, and definition of what effectual calling is. It is the sovereign authoritative summons of God the Father through God's word to believe the gospel and enter into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. <coughs> so God, <clears throat> before uh, a dead sinner, summons him through the gospel to come to Christ, to believe in Christ. But the man is in such a desperate need, he's dead. How can he? <laughs> I mean, just think about that. Brother Dave O works in a, at a um, funeral home, I guess, or whatever you call it. Um, and, you know, you see a lot of dead people, don't you? Have you ever tried to... Yeah, yeah. 
You ever try to talk to one of those dead people? Tell them to get up? No. <laughs> how, how useful would that be? <laughs> that, I mean, it's, it's obvious to us. Someone, when someone is dead, you can't tell them to do anything. There's, there's no life there. There's nothing to respond to your call to them. So when the gospel comes to people, as Pastor Mark preaches or Pastor Thad or Tim or anybody else preaches the, the gospel on a Sunday morning or any other time, if you're speaking to a friend one-on-one -on -one, and you're telling them the gospel of Christ, and you're telling them to believe spiritually to put their trust in Christ, but they are spiritually dead. How are they, how are they going to ever believe? How are they ever going to come to Christ? They are not. They cannot. As we have already seen from those earlier passages. So what is it that man needs? Man needs something in order for him to be able to respond to the gospel. And that's where our topic this morning comes in. Effectual calling carries with it as, a, as its inseparable companion, regeneration. Regeneration comes with the effectual calling. Now, if you and I were to stand before a dead corpse, or if Dave stood before a dead corpse and said, live, come forth, wouldn't do anything, would it? But we are mere humans. But when Jesus stood before the, the, uh, the tomb of Lazarus, and he said, Lazarus, come forth, he issued a call, but in, in, inseparable with that call was the power of regenerating life. And he gave life to Lazarus when he issued that call. And that life enabled Lazarus then to respond to the call. <clears throat> if, it had been, if it had been just anybody walking down the street saying, oh, there's poor Lazarus, I think I'll just raise him from the dead. And he called out, Lazarus, come out, out of the grave. It wouldn't have, it wouldn't have done anything. you would have been still there. But when Jesus, when God issues the call, Coming with that call, that effectual, that's why it's an effectual call, is regenerating grace so that the person is given life and they can respond to the call. So God's enabling divine regeneration, in a word, means life. Regeneration gives life. So here's the overview. I think you've already seen it. The overview is simply this. <clears throat> Effectual calling summons us to Christ, but we are dead and we cannot respond. But because the call is effectual, and that call carries with it the divine enabling of regeneration, that is the giving of life, which gives us life, we then... Uh, need to respond or can respond. It carries with it the divine enabling of regeneration which gives us life that we need to be able to respond is probably a better way to word that. So, 
then man's inevitable saving response is that he, he uh, responds with faith and repentance. Now there, we talked initially about the order that you see here on the chart, okay? Effectual calling, all right? And then regeneration. Man is dead in his trespasses and sins. He's called by God to the gospel, to believe the gospel. God then gives him life, regenerates him, so that he then can respond in faith and repentance. And he does respond in faith and repentance. And thus it is said that God grants faith and repentance. Any questions about the overview? We're going to go on next and talk about the nature of regeneration itself. We've already um, described it in broad terms. But before we do that, any questions about the, uh, this broad overview of where regeneration falls in the grand scheme of God's plan of redemption? Okay. Either it's clear or it's totally muddy and you can't even think of a question to ask, so. <clears throat> All right, well, let's, let's uh, go on then. That's the context of regeneration. And what about the nature of regeneration? Well, I've already uh, discussed that to some degree, <clears throat> and that is, let me give you a definition. Regeneration is a gracious act of God alone whereby he mysteriously gives new spiritual life to a sinner transforming his nature. So regeneration is a gracious act of God alone whereby he mysteriously gives new spiritual life to a sinner transforming his nature. What we're going to do is we're going to look at each of the parts of that definition real quickly. So, to begin with, the word regeneration. <clears throat> now, the word regeneration has other terms in Scripture that are essentially synonymous with it that you could use uh, and that the Scriptures do use, such as the new birth or uh, being born again or being born from above um, or being made alive or the old King James uh, quickened from Ephesians you may remember the old King James uh, translation of Ephesians 2 but those are some of the terms that can be used with regard to regeneration Regeneration is a gracious act of God. By gracious, we simply mean that it is not based on human merit. We don't deserve to be regenerated. We're rebellious. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. It's not as, though, oh, yeah, God owes it to us. No, God doesn't owe it to us. God could leave us dead in our sins, and we would get what we justly deserve. We do not merit. We, we, we do not... God does not owe us regeneration. It is an act 
That is, it is instantaneous. It is not a work. It is not something that is ongoing. It is not as though, okay, I got 10% of my life when I was you know, 10, and then I got you know, 20% when I was 11, and 30% when I was 12. No, it's, it's not an ongoing work. It is an act. It is something that either you're dead or you're alive. You know, it, the, the physical analogy, I think, is fairly obvious. Jim. What about if you're dead and you're still rebellious? You know, because we were all rebellious prior to being regenerated, and yet our sanctification takes some time. So I'm, I'm curious how you're saying it's instantaneous, because it seems like it would be something that would be more stretched out. Well, regeneration, the giving of life, is instantaneous. You're dead, and then God calls you through the gospel. His spirit gives you life. You respond in faith and repentance. And then from that point on, you, you, you pursue sanctification. How do you compare that to the uh, sower and the seeds, where some seeds you know, were fertile, produced uh, fruit, some were fell on the wayside and withered, and so on and so forth? They yeah, regeneration doesn't mean that you're fully sanctified. Regeneration simply means that you're, li- you're, you're given life. You're like a baby, a newborn baby. So um, you now have life, whereas once you didn't. Hey, Larry. Yes. I think it might also be helpful to say that uh, if you're struggling with assurance of salvation, it's probably not your best focus to try to find the point in which you were regenerated. Your focus needs to be on, am I exercising faith and repentance in Christ now? Yeah. So regeneration is a doctrine that we discover and glory in after we're saved, but not necessarily we're preaching at people, be regenerated, be regenerated. We're preaching at them, believe and repent. Yes, amen, amen, that's a, that's a good point. Actually, it's something that'll tie in well with something that we'll say here in just a moment, too. So it, it is instantaneous, it's an act, it's not a work. Um, and then just con- continuing on with our explanation of this definition. Um, regeneration is something done by God alone. We do not regenerate ourselves. And well, I'll fill this in a little bit more shortly. God is the only actor, put actor in quotes, in regenerating a sinner. We don't, we don't, rege- we don't give ourselves life. We're dead. <laughs> Lazarus couldn't give himself life. He needed someone outside of himself to give him life. And um, regeneration then is the giving of life. That's the heart of it. Spiritually, the sinner is dead and he has no life. But when God regenerates a sinner, he gives him life. And I want you to think about that. that. This is describing you, brother or sister. You were once dead in your trespasses and sins. And God gave you spiritual life if you, were a, if you um, are a child of God. And it is new. New spiritual. It's not, he doesn't just patch up the old self. He gives you new spiritual life. You become, as we will see later on, a new creature. You were dead spiritually. God operates in regeneration in the realm of the 
the soul or the spirit. It is not a, a bodily giving of life. You already have life bodily. Although there will come a day after your body dies that you will be resurrected. But that is not regeneration. Regeneration is, is um, God's operating in the realm of the soul or the spirit. Giving you spiritual life. Not something you see or tangibly touch. And um, it is mysterious, kind of tying in with what Jason said there. It is mysterious. Precisely when and how God gives life to a sinner is unknown to us. It's a secret of the Spirit. We will see passage, passage on that shortly. And that is why Jason mentioned that you, know, you don't go around trying to determine the precise moment of your regeneration if you're struggling with assurance. That's um, a mystery. If you think back about, about the time when you came to know the Lord, if I think about when I came to know the Lord, I don't know, I can't pinpoint the exact uh, minute, the exact even hour in which the Lord gave me life. I, I know generally that the time frame, maybe some of you can narrow it down a little bit more closely than I can, but even still, there is mystery there as to exactly when um, God gave you life. So that, by way of definition of and the nature of regeneration, let's talk then a little bit about the cause. Yes. Something that I've always felt the tension when it comes to the new birth, the regeneration, is the the emphasis upon our being sinners in, in, uh, versus being new creatures in Christ. Uh, I know our nature has been changed. I know there's remaining sin. But as far as who we are in Christ, are we still identified as a sinner or as a new creature in Christ? And uh, Because it seems like, especially Puritan and Reformed, uh, writings really emphasize our sinfulness and our wickedness and our being worms. <laughs> and it has a tendency, I think, to downplay the, the, uh, the importance of regeneration. Yeah, uh, that's a good question. Um, I've often... This is going to be really rough. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's you. We just had some folks over last night. Watson, I told you I couldn't draw. So. <laughs> okay. If we, uh, if we take the blue and say the blue represents the new you, who you really are, some people would kind of um, say this is, this is us. You know, you're basically a sinner, but you've got you know, a new, a new side to you, you're, you've been regenerated. Um, 
even though this picture is pretty lousy, I would say it's more like this. This is who you really are, the blue being the regenerated new creature in Christ. You do have remaining corruption within you, but who you really are, who you will be for eternity, is the new creature. Anyway, hey, that, that's my illustration. John Murray, in his Exposition of Romans 6, had a really good expression that stuck with me for decades. He said, what we are is, is new men, not yet made perfect. That's such a good summary statement. We are new men, not yet made perfect. So we still have sin reigning in us, but what we are is new creatures. We're new, not yet made perfect. Amen. We're on the way. Amen. And actually, one time I did a study of the word sinner, and the Bible does pretty much reserve the word sinner. There are, except, there are exceptions, but it pretty much does reserve the word sinner for those who are unbelievers. I have a question too, Larry. So, in the gospel, when Jesus calls to, for instance, Matthew, and he says, follow me, so Jesus is, some, of course, summoning Matthew to follow him. At that point, would you say that Matthew, with regeneration, actually occurred? You know, I don't know. I, I don't, it doesn't seem to me that that, it's clear that what he's doing is saying, Matthew, I, I'm regenerating you at that point. He's telling him to follow him as a, as a disciple. He's going to become one of the 12 apostles. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know that I could say that that's at the point at which he was regenerated. Okay, the cause of regeneration. Well, negatively, the cause is obviously not us. We are not the cause of our own, own regeneration. We do not give ourselves life. Reminds me of this cartoon that I <clears throat> uh, came up with one, that I saw one time. Anybody, anybody ever hear of Broomhilda? Okay. And so in Broomhilda, there's this, uh, this troll. His name is Irwin. He, and he's kind of the, uh, the simple-minded, innocent, dumb, naive, furry little guy. Um, and then there's a Gaylord Buzzard. He's the intellectual, you know, smart, egotistical, sarcastic kind of guy. And uh, Irwin says to, to, uh, uh, to Gaylord one time, he says, uh, hey, Gaylord, how'd you get to be so smart? And Gaylord says, I chose a smart set of parents. <laughs> And Irwin says, gee, dumb guys like me would never even think of doing that. So anyway, that illustrates the, the principle of regeneration or of giving you life. How many of you um, picked your own parents? We don't do that. The cause of regeneration then is not us. We don't regenerate ourselves. We did not choose to be born. Positively, it is God, and in particular, the scriptures do teach us that it is God the Father. 1 Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He, God the Father, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Boy, there's, there's reason for worship right there. God the Father came 
and gave you life so you could believe. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Of his own will, he brought us forth. That's the new birth. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits, first fruits of his creatures. God willed that you should be given life. And it is God the Father, not us, God. But not only is it God, it is also God the Father, but also the scriptures make it plain, it is God the Holy Spirit. We know from John 3, Jesus in talking to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus comes to him by night, and he asks him, he says, we see the great signs that you do, we know that you're a teacher come from God. And Jesus says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born from above, I know that your translation probably says born again. Personally, the, the Greek term there, anaganeo, I believe would be better translated from above, the term ana, which is the prefix to the word to, to, be, to give birth, to be born, um, can be translated from above or above. If you look at John's Later on in John's Gospel, chapter, same chapter, chapter 3, but verse 31, it says, He who comes from above is above all. Same term. That's referring to Christ. Christ is from above. And I believe, personally, that the better translation of John 3, and I'm not going to debate this or argue this, because it, 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 it turns out to be the same basic doctrine regardless. But I think it would be better translated from above. Is it? So truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born from above. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone born of the Spirit. And that's why we said earlier that there's mystery involved. We don't know exactly when the Holy Spirit comes and blows in, in our hearts and gives us life. We, can't, we cannot necessarily pinpoint the exact time. But you do know that the wind is blown there. So it is God the Holy Spirit who gives us life. <clears throat> now there are three scriptural analogies that the Bible use with, uses with regard to regeneration. The first we've already been talking about that is birth. <coughs> we see that from John 3.8, the passage we just looked at. So is everyone born. Okay, here's the analogy of birth. He's born of the Spirit. James 1.18 says, of his own will he brought us forth. And by the way, there are different, use, different words, Greek words for the term to, to begat or to, to be born or to bring forth. Um, all of those terms are used with regard to God doing it, not us. And there are there's more than one. So whichever term you want to use, it's still God doing it. Birth. Second is the concept of resurrection, made alive. <clears throat> so we've already seen Ephesians... Chapter 2, 
But God, when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him. You're dead. God speaks life and raises you from the dead spiritually. So the, the analogy of resurrection, we see that also from John chapter 5. I'll read that to you. If you would like, you can turn with me there to John chapter 5, verse 24. This actually speaks of two different <coughs> resurrections in John chapter 5. Both a physical and a spiritual resurrection. Jesus speaks in verse 24 and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed, passed out of death into life. So note that. <clears throat> There's one truly, truly. Second truly, truly, verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear shall live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to, his, to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming. Okay, first of all, an hour is coming and now is. Now he says, an hour is coming in which all who are in the tomb shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Those who who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So <clears throat> there's, a con there's an hour coming and now is that those who <laughs> hear and believe will be given life and there's an hour coming yet in the future where you will be resurrected that those uh, to whom he has given life will be resurrected to to a physical resurrection. So there's both in this passage. Um, and uh, again, uh, there's a lot, of course, there's a lot more in that passage. I just want to highlight the fact that there is the concept of resurrection involved in the new birth. And then finally, the third analogy is the analogy of creation. <clears throat> and again, I, I sometimes I alter these translations just a little bit to try to capture the the flavor of the original most of your translations will probably have something like therefore if anyone is in Christ he is a new creature or new creation but the little the words he is a are not actually in the original if you were to translate it the way it kind of is it's like as Paul says if anybody is in Christ it's almost though he pauses to reflect what does that mean to be in Christ there's union with Christ that Jason talked about if anybody is united to Christ if anybody is in Christ if he has experientially become united to Christ it's almost as though he pauses for a moment and, and it comes into his mind, what does this mean? This means that he is a completely new creation. And he just, he doesn't bother with saying he is a new creation, although he could have done that in the Greek. 
but he just kind of explodes with, if anybody's in Christ, new creation. That's what it is. That's what happened to you when he gave you birth, when he resurrected you from the dead. He made you a new creature. You are a new creation in Christ. The old is going to pass away in you, and the new is coming. You are not the same person you once were. So there are the three analogies that the scriptures use. Ephesians 2.10 also supports this. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So when we think about the cause of regeneration, that is God, and we see these three analogies, they tell us something. Why is it that those are the three analogies? Why doesn't he use an analogy of putting together a putting together a wagon to be pulled by a cart, by a horse or something? Those are not the analogies that he uses. He uses these analogies, the analogy of, of birth, the analogy of resurrection, the analogy of creation. <clears throat> and... Um, I think we need to ask ourselves a question, well, who among us decides to be born? You know, by a little cartoon there of Erwin and, and Gaylord. Who decides to be born? Who picks their parents? Who raises himself from the dead? Who creates himself? <laughs> well, obviously, nobody. Nobody. Not a one of us ever did that for ourselves. So what are the conclusions that we should draw from this analogy? The conclusion is simply this, what we, our definition already told us. God alone gives life to the sinner who is entirely passive in this gracious action of regeneration. God alone gives us life. <laughs> I want you to think for a moment. Um, Pastor Mark gets up and preaches, or somebody else gets up and preaches. <clears throat> think in your mind, if you will, about Mark standing before a graveyard. Bunch of tombstones. People buried six feet under. Strangely enough, though, in this graveyard, over on this tombstone, there's actually somebody sitting on the tombstone. And over here, there's somebody sitting on his tombstone. And over there, there's someone sitting on her tombstone. Some people kind of scattered about. But there are other graves in this graveyard, and there's nobody sitting on the tombstone. And Mark is preaching the gospel to them, saying, live. Come to Christ and live. Believe the gospel and you will live. 
But Mark does not have the power to raise any of those people from the dead. But he preaches the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. And when God the Holy Spirit owns that gospel, he, God the Holy Spirit, God the Father, reaches down into those graves and brings to, to life a dead sinner. And when he does that, there comes another one sitting on the tombstone. He's alive. She's alive. That's what God does in regeneration. Who gets the glory for that? Us? We made ourselves alive? Mark? Could he do it? No, he was just the instrument God used. It is God. As, as uh, PKW preached, he gets all the glory to the praise of the glory of his grace is this doctrine of regeneration. So, what does God use? Well, I've already stated it just now, really. <laughs> Sinners are regenerated by means of the word of God, empowered or applied by the spirit of God. How is it that this happens? Sinners are regenerated by means of the word of God, empowered and applied by the spirit of God. We see this from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 23 to 25. You have been born from above, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, the word of God, through the living and abiding word of God. And Jesus says that word will not pass away, even though heaven and earth passes away. His word will not pass away. So we have been born from above. There's regeneration, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. The good news, the gospel. <laughs> so there it is. A preacher stands before dead sinners and he preaches the gospel. He preaches God's word. And God uses that to bring them to life. John says the same thing. It is, and this is Jesus recorded in, in John. It is the spirit who gives life. What does he use? The flesh is of no value, of, of no avail. You know, man can't do it on his own. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. And I added my words. This is Jesus speaking. <clears throat> it is the spirit using the word of God to give life to the sinner. Therefore, here's the big conclusion. We, we, you, know, you might say, well, if it's God who gives life, then why preach? Why pray? Just let God do it. No, that's not what the scriptures teach. We preach and we pray. Isn't that what Peter's telling us? How does he do it? Through the living and abiding word of God. This is the word, this is the good news that was preached to you. If it hadn't been preached to them, there wouldn't have been the means used by the Spirit of God to give life. That's what God's the Spirit, God's the, God the Holy Spirit uses. He uses God's word. And so we preach. 
And yes, when we preach, our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is not in our persuasive abilities. Our hope is not in how eloquent we can be or what great illustrations we can have. Our hope is in God. Our hope is in Him and therefore we pray. We preach and we pray and we let God do His work. And He does do His work mysteriously, secretly. We don't know when and how. The wind blows where it will. We don't control that, but we preach and God owns that and God regenerates and gives life to the sinner. And that's exactly what he did to you. That's how you came to know Christ. You heard the gospel and God made it alive to you. I, I remember being told the gospel several times and it, it was like I kind of I got it and I kind of didn't. But there came a day when I really got it. I really understood. And I knew I needed to repent and believe the gospel. Why? God gave me life and enabled me to see what I couldn't see before. Therefore, we preach and we pray in our, and we don't hope in ourselves, we hope in God. The means, those are the means of regeneration. Now, what about the effects of, of regeneration, the results of regeneration? Well, we've already, Dave brought this up actually in his question. Um, regeneration is radical. <laughs> it's pretty radical to, to be erased from the dead. It's pretty radical to, to, be, to be born. <laughs> um, it's Haley, you'll be having another one born pretty quick. That's, gonna, that's not going to be like, you know, oh, well, uh, I just, uh, you picked a flower. No, it's going to be a little more significant than that. It's, it's a radical thing, you know, to be born. Um, it's a radical thing to be made a new creation. It's not a minor adjustment. When God gives you life, he does something radical. So that the one born of God <clears throat> becomes a new, creature, a new creation, a new creature, and he begins to do and live differently. According to 1 John chapter 2, actually, let me, let me give some of these verses out real quickly and, and have, you, uh, have some of you read these, if you will. Um, <clears throat> I'll, we, you know, we usually start... Kind of, I'm going to start somewhere like in the middle. I'm just going to parcel these out. Gary, would you mind reading for me? <clears throat> First John chapter two. Most of these are going to come from First John. So First John chapter two, verse twenty-nine, two twenty-nine, and then um, Sally, would you be willing to read First John chapter five, verse one? And um, Paula, would you be willing to read 1 John chapter 4, verse 7? <clears throat> Devo, 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. And Carla, 1 John 5, 18. Okay. <clears throat> so let's begin with the first one. 1 John chapter 2, verse 29. 1 John 2, 29, 39. 
Yeah, just just yes. just two twenty nine. <coughs> right? Yeah, yeah, you you're you're the guy. We know that we have come to know him. If we obey his commands, the man who says I know him does does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Dear friends, I'm not writing you. Okay, brother, I'm going to stop you there. Um, that that was First John. I think you're reading two through nine. I was I'm assigning you verse twenty nine. Um, but actually, that's a pretty good one too. That, you know, <laughs> <clears throat> that, that ties in real well. Tells us what happens. You want me to start over? Yeah, if you will, go ahead and read verse twenty-nine. <clears throat> okay, that's in chapter. Chapter two, yeah. Uh, twenty-nine. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone does what is right how do you know if you've been born of him if you have been regenerated well if you're practicing righteousness same thing is stated uh, by the way in chapter 3 in verse 9 no one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God it doesn't mean you can you never ever sin ever it just means you don't continually practice sin because you become a new creature you're something different okay let's go on to uh, the next uh, passage here, which is um, John. Uh, we're going to just read First John chapter five and verse one. Sally. Okay. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is a child of God, and everyone who loves the parent loves the child. Okay. Now my translation says, "Every whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God." Same thing. You're born of God. You're a child of God. So, being born of God means that you believe that Jesus is the Christ. You exercise faith. What about um, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7, Paula? Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Okay. Love is from God because God is love. Everyone who's born of God loves. <clears throat> so a person who practices love is indicating that he is born of God. How about uh, Dave, First John chapter 5, verse 4? For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Okay, so if you're born of God, you will overcome the world. The world will not overcome you, ultimately. Yes, we... We wrestle against the world, we fight against the world, and there are times when we stumble. A righteous man stumbled seven times, but he gets up and he continues on that path. And ultimately, he's going to overcome. And in fact, that's the term that is used by John, the same author in the book of Revelation, to describe Christians. We are overcomers. Okay, we overcome the world. And then finally, the... Well, these are just, we, we could go on, there's more. Carla, First John 5, 18. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God sins, and the evil one does not touch him. So one who is born of God does not keep on sinning, and God protects him. 
You know, he's not on this, he's not doing this all on his own either. God's protecting you. But these are the the effects, the results of being regenerated. It's it's radical. You become a new creature. You don't live the same life you lived before. You begin practicing righteousness. You exercise faith and, tr and trust in Jesus Christ. You begin, begin loving in a way that you never loved before. You never even interested in loving before. You overcome the world instead of wanting to pursue the world like I did before I was a Christian and wanting the things of the world. Instead, we, we war against the flesh and we war against this world. And we do not keep on sinning. We're protected by God through all of this. He guards us. He takes care of us. These are the radical effects of being born from above, of being regenerated by God. So brothers and sisters, as we go to worship, worship God because he gave you life. He regenerated your dead heart. Let's pray. Lord God, Thank you, thank you, thank you for giving us life. In Jesus' name we give you thanks. Amen. Amen.